feels like Christmas, doesn't it? But it's only the fourth Sunday of Advent. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We have a Christmas story to read this morning. Um, it's in Matthew chapter 1. Mary and Joseph, uh, by now, are probably packed up. Joseph was required to take his family to go register down in Bethlehem. And the journey from Nazareth, where they resided, down to Bethlehem, well, it was just a short walk of about 80 miles up and down hills and, and so forth. And, you know, the caravans during the day, they, during that time, they, they traveled about 20 miles a day on foot. And so, you know, with Mary in her condition, I'm imagining maybe they didn't get quite 20 miles a day. So it's a four to five, maybe six day journey. And so, if you can imagine that, they left like Thursday or Friday of this past week in time to get there for Tuesday's celebration. I hope they're not late, because I'd really have to hate to reschedule the Christmas Eve service and for Christmas Day. But they're on the way, and on our calendar, we, we know December 24th is going to happen. So for us, we could say that the glow of Bethlehem is on the horizon. We are almost there. And, and during our season of Advent, as we finish up this Advent season this week, our, our prayer has been that, that we will have made room in our lives for the Christ child, that we will have readied ourselves and made space so that Jesus could be born in us this year as well. And so this week, as we look at Matthew's account of the Christmas story. I just want to tell you, it's the unconventional version of the story. Luke's gospel gets all of the attention around Christmas time. Matthew's is kind of overlooked, and, you know, we only get to it in the, the lectionary. The, the lectionary only cycles this version of the Christmas story every three years, but there's Luke's story, Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. It shows up every Christmas Eve, every year. So Luke gets the attention, Matthew is maybe the side story, but I want to take a look at that one with you today, because I, I really like how Matthew tells the story. He tells it from a different perspective. He, he, focuses, he focuses in on Jesus' other parent. Jesus had two parents. He had a mother, Mary, but he had an adopted father in Joseph, and that's who Matthew focuses on. So I'd invite you to stand as we read this text together. It's found in Matthew chapter 1, and we'll start reading uh, in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Another way that you could say that, this is how the genesis of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. 
because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is a story filled with mystery and wonder. And we say, thanks be to God. You can be seated. How many of you have... Go ahead and you can raise your hand. Uh, Nobody will judge you. Uh, How many of you have ever watched a reality TV show? Um, Yeah, I guess I have too. I'm not crazy into them like some people are, but uh, I've watched a reality TV show or two in my life. Um, I was thinking about that this week, and so I I found a website that kind of tracks reality TV shows. And I knew that there were several TV shows of the reality version. Uh, Anybody have a guess as to how many reality TV shows there actually are? Anybody? 722. Are you kidding me? 722 different reality TV shows. I was kind of blown away, but I I I don't think my guess would have been over 100, but there it was. 722 different reality TV shows. Amazing Race, Survivor, America's Got Talent, uh, The Biggest Loser, uh, Hoarders. Uh, Remember when The Apprentice first came out with Donald Trump in his hair? Um, You got The Bachelor, you got Cake Boss, Dirty Jobs, Duck Dynasty, Fear Factor, Jersey Shore. Now there were a couple of them that I hadn't heard of. Um, There's a reality TV show called Preacher's Daughters. Nicole and Kaylin, please stay away from that. I don't know what it's about, but (laughs) we don't need to go there. Uh, There's one called Beauty and the Geek. Uh, Maybe I could have started that as the geek. Um, There's Airplane Repo. What? Who repos airplanes? Somebody, I guess, and they made a TV show out of it. And, And here's the one that I got the biggest kick out of. There's one called The Amish Mafia. Like, are you kidding? I've spent some time around the Amish, and I don't think they have a mafia. Um, But the reality TV show, they're supposed to give you a hint of real life. That's kind of the entertainment value, is that you get to peer into somebody else's life. Crazy and mixed up as it might be, that's that's what the point of these shows are. And, And... we, we are kind of drawn to the brutal honesty of some of the judges. We, we, we are looking forward to the occasional, or maybe not so occasional, train wreck that happens between people and their situation. Uh, you know, that's part, of the, that's part of the way they get ratings. And every so often, and I can't imagine that people are shocked by this, once in a while, the characters on these reality TV shows, well, they say something that is just flat-out raw, flat-out hurtful, and it's, it's not very well thought out at all, actually. But that's what gets the ratings. Sometimes it's okay to explode like that when it's scripted. Other times, maybe not so much. There's one reality TV show that's called 16 and Pregnant. 
That's just sad, if you ask me. That we have to make a TV show out of that? But then, <laughs> then I was reading this book this week, and I read our story. I read our story. Maybe the appropriate title for the reality TV show that we could make out of the text we just read is 14 and Pregnant. And the storyline kind of goes, yes, 14 and pregnant, did Mary cheat on her husband? And then you get the tagline in some of the marketing material. I can, I can see how TV would blow this out of proportion. Certainly looks like she cheated on her husband because she's carrying around the evidence and it's becoming visible. And she claims that, she claims that this child is from the Holy Spirit. It's God's baby. Uh-huh. And what else were they serving at that party? It just seems like a story that we have in front of us right here is one that's just made perfectly for a TV reality show. It was a way of Mary, claim, Mary claiming that this is God's baby was, was one way of the time of adding blasphemy to the charge of infidelity that was already being circulated. So behind this neat and tidy little nativity scene is this huge scandal. What will Joseph do? If Mary is telling the truth, what, what is this God of ours up to? If you ask me, I, I'm not sure if, if I would have orchestrated this story exactly as it came out. I don't know if I would have done it like this. I mean, why have a story with the appearance of such disgrace? Why? This looks so ungodly, if you ask me. There's too much room for misunderstanding in our text here. I mean, what are people, people going to think? Why would you have the king of kings born in a peasant community to a no-name teenager who, has, who isn't actually married yet. Why, why would you go about doing it like that? I mean, it doesn't make sense from, a, from, from our perspective. You know, childbirth is, is exciting. And, and the way that the story is told here, well, it takes away Mary's opportunity to be excited and to celebrate with her community with, about her first child. I mean, it's not something that you really want to have spread around on Facebook, and there's, there's no, you're probably not going out for a photo shoot, and there's probably not going to be a baby shower. There's no hugs, there's no high fives. Joseph's not passing out cigars down at the barbershop. He's not getting slaps on the back. He's just getting weird looks, like, what's going on? See, they're just trying to keep whatever digni dignity that they could begging to keep it out of the local small-town newspaper. And we know about small-town newspapers. They'll print just about anything, whether it's true or not. I've had my fair share of, of dealings with papers. I could write the article for them and send it in, and they would still get it wrong. They're just trying to keep this mess out of the paper. It's an unconventional way of talking about this story. I mean, the arrival of our Savior, it didn't fit into what people were expecting. It didn't conform to the conventional way of thinking and acting of the day. It didn't model proper social behavior. This isn't how you do it, if you ask me. I think I probably would have 
told the story, had it unfold a little bit differently. But Matthew, well, he, he takes the camera and he focuses it in on Joseph. What about Joseph? What does he think? What does he feel about this whole situation? How is he supposed to respond to all that has happened to him? It certainly has deviated from, from what he was expecting. It's not his hope. It's not his dream. It's not how he would imagine the coming together with Mary and, and the birth of their first child. This isn't how he would have written it out ahead of time. The popular telling of the Christmas narrative, it really largely overlooks Joseph and, and his feelings. I mean, sure, he's present in the nativity scenes, but he seems, he seems to play a really small role. He, he's just a bit part. I mean, Joseph doesn't even have any lines. I mean, Mary gets all the attention. Anyone can stand in and play Joseph without having to learn any lines. You sure he may be asked once in a while to run down to the local grocery mart to pick up some pickles and ice cream and bring it back to the set, but, but this Joseph guy, he's just a small player in most of our nativity scenes, just a bit part. I remember last year, uh, Bruce, where are you, Bruce? He asked a deeply theological question. He said, why is it always a Merry Christmas? Why isn't it ever a Joseph Christmas? That's the question. Joseph gets overlooked. Why don't we go around saying to each other, have a Joseph Christmas? You know, there aren't even many songs that are written about Joseph either. I mean, if you think about it, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Or, or the song that we just sang, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright, Round Yon Virgin mother and child? Why not father and child? Joseph, he's kind of overlooked. He's just the player there in the scenery and the nativity set. Just, just stand over there, Joseph. Don't block Mary. She's the star. We need to see the baby Jesus. So make sure that when you position yourself on stage, you just kind of stay out of the way. You know, it reminds me of, you know, if you watch NFL, the referees that are on the field, they're actually considered to be part of the field. Joseph is just part of the scenery, part of the field of play. But Matthew chooses to focus in on the character of Joseph. He tells the story a little bit differently. He tells it from Joseph's perspective. See, Joseph discovers that his uh, soon-to-be wife, Mary, is pregnant. Now, to fully grasp um, the severity of the situation, you have to understand something about the way marriage worked in that time and place. Uh, marriage was actually a process that included several stages. Uh, the first stage is the engagement. And so, to be engaged... Uh, your family, mom and dad, probably dads most likely, arranged your marriage with another family. Hey, we think, you know, Mary and Joseph, they would be great together. And they would make a handshake and, and they would be engaged. That's the first stage. There's nothing legally binding at that time. People could change their mind and they could back out of that. But then 
The second stage comes along, and that's called the betrothal. And the betrothal was an actual ceremony where you exchanged vows and promises and so forth, and, and Joseph would likely have paid the bride price at this time. And, and this, is, this is permanent. This is, this, you're locked in. This is legally binding. And so this betrothal would last for a year, sometimes longer. Um, the betrothal was everything that a marriage consists of but the consummation. The bride would live with her family, and the groom would live with his family. And then after about a, a year, they would have an official marriage ceremony celebration where the groom would parade to the, to the bride's house, and he would escort her back to his, his residence, and they would consummate the marriage. And that would, that's the three stages of marriage. Now, when we read our story, Mary and Joseph are already betrothed. They've already gone through the ceremony where they promise things to each other. Till death do us part kind of stuff. So it's legally binding. Joseph's already paid the price. He's probably, in his mind, thinking, I got to get ready. I have a year to prepare, maybe less. I need to get my house in order. Make sure I've got a steady job and income is coming in so that I can take care of this girl, Mary. We don't really know too much about this man, Joseph. I mean, over there in Matthew 13, we learn that, that Joseph is a carpenter. And when Jesus has uh, started his public ministry and he goes to his hometown and he starts preaching, the people, they scratch their heads and they wonder, well, who is this guy? Isn't this the carpenter's son? That's Joseph. The word that's used there for carpenter is tecton. Uh, there's, there's a couple, couple words in the Greek that refer to builders. Tecton is one of them. It means somebody who builds something. Could be carpenter. Many of the houses of the day were stone, so he could have been a stonemason. He could have fixed things. He was probably a general all-around handyman kind of a person. The other word is architecton. Architecton. You hear architect in that? Architecton uh, is a master builder. They would design things, they would plan out the projects, and then they would hire tectons to come in and do all the work. So Joseph is described as a tecton. He is uh, he's a solid, simple guy. He's an ordinary blue-collar worker. He is a man, probably a few words. He has none in our text, but he's a good man. He's a good man. He's a good guy who wakes up one day to find that his life has completely jumped the tracks. His betrothed wife, Mary, is pregnant. It's shocking. He was betrayed. Adultery is what it looks like. In adultery, it was, the, it was the ultimate theft in society. So there he is, Joseph, pregnant wife. He had nothing to do with it. His future is ruined. His future has definitely changed. His, his dreams have been shattered. Yeah, what should he do? How should Joseph feel about this? I mean, how is life going to carry on for this guy? Who do you turn to when, 
when you have a situation that presents itself like this? Do you go to public opinion? Uh, I mean, should Joseph take it up with the boys down at the local coffee shop? Hey, guys, did you hear about Mary? Yeah. Hey, what do you think I should do? Think he should do that? I'm sure he could get a lot of good advice from those boys at the coffee shop. But we learn something about the character of this man in our text today. If you're still in Matthew chapter 1, look, look at verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. Because Joseph, her husband, was what? Faithful to the law. That's a way of saying that Joseph cared about following the law of God. He, he cared about justice. He cared about living by the book. He cared about being faithful to God, and he cared about being faithful to the law. Joseph spent his life coloring inside the lines of the boundaries that were set up in Scripture. You could say emphatically that Joseph was a righteous man, a law-abiding citizen. That was, that was buried deep in his bones. That's who he was, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. He was a righteous man. See, he could clear his name publicly. Because when you're a God-fearing Jew, and you're a law-following Jew, you do what the Bible says, right? If you're a God-fearing Jew, you pull out the book, and you flip to the page where it has your situation, and you say, this is what I'm going to do. If you look up Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24, the punishment that's in the Bible, in his scripture, for a law-abiding Jew to follow would be that you find out who did it, and you take them both out to the city line, and you stone them to death. Joseph was a righteous man. He could clear his name by doing what the book says. He could take her to court. He could divorce her. He could cut her loose and let the system deal with her in whatever way that they would choose. But that's only part of verse 19. If you're still there, look at, look at verse 19, the second part. And yet Joseph did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace. So he had in mind to divorce her quietly. It, this tells us that despite Joseph's unswerving loyalty to the law and to justice, that he was a man of compassion. He is a God-fearing, law-abiding Jew, but he also had compassion in his heart. And he didn't go around swinging a 17-pound Bible and thump people over the heads with it. He had every right to dismiss Mary, publicly shaming her, disgracing her, even putting her to death. He had two options that the law allowed. One, he could stone her, he could have her stone. Uh, 
and the other was to divorce her, take her to court, and make a public spectacle out of her so that he could get his honor back. Either case, it's death, right? Death by stoning or death by shunning. Because if he pulled the plug on this whole thing and cut her loose, she, she may have some support while her parents were still alive, but when they passed away, there'd be nobody to care for Mary. Nobody looking out for her well-being. There'd be no income. She'd have to resort to begging. There, there would be no other husband that would come along, likely, that would want to take tainted goods like this. Joseph was a law-abiding, God-fearing Jew who was compassionate. I mean, if you think about it, what would you do? If you ask me, if you ask me and, and I hear from an angel that says, don't worry, Joseph, don't be afraid, the child is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. If you ask me, I'm asking the angel, well, I don't know who the, this Holy Spirit person is, but I certainly want their address because I know a couple guys and we'll go take care of this right now. That's how we think about dealing with stuff like this. That's what the world says is the conventional way of, of dealing with a problem like this is when a situation like this happens you go into self-protective mode. Me, myself, and I, how can I come out of this looking like a rose? How can I get my honor back? It doesn't really tell us to think of the other person first. But Joseph, he had made up his mind to divorce her quietly. He had to follow the law. He had two options. See, the, the law did not allow him to simply forgive and forget and move on. But Joseph didn't want to make a public disgrace of Mary. He found a third option. That was the compassionate option in his mind. I'll give her a certificate of divorce, but I'll do it quietly. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to worry about that bride price that I paid that I could probably get back if I took her to court. I, I'm not going to... I'm not going to worry about the shame that's been brought upon me in this situation. I'm going to seek to preserve whatever dignity Mary can muster. I'm going to divorce her quietly and not make a spectacle of this. All he needed to do in this third option was to have two witnesses. He could give her a certificate and they could part company. And that's what our text says that he had decided to do. It says, after he had considered this. The angel didn't appear until after he had decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the law. I know it tells me that I need to part company from her, but I'm going to do it quietly. I'm going to do it as compassionately as I know how to do. Just because it's a compassionate decision doesn't mean that it was an easy one. I mean, this was really an unconventional way of, 
of responding to this situation. This isn't the normal way. I mean, people would seek to regain that final, that financial loss. And I mean, this is a wounded person. He's terribly hurt and he's been utterly betrayed. And most people would seek to get whatever they could out of the situation for themselves. But Joseph, he didn't value his own reputation as much as Mary's. We wouldn't have faulted him for going through with parting ways. I wonder if I, I've asked the question this week, what would have happened if Joseph made a different choice? What do you do when your dreams are shattered like this? See, is struggling with fear and grief only seem to tighten the grip on your life. It's like a boa constrictor choking the life out of its prey. Your, your mind spins out of control. It races from one negative thought to the next, spiraling circles until you're mentally and emotionally and physically exhausted. Marty Copenhaver, he says that, that there's sometimes a blessing in all of this because when we're weakened enough and tired enough, we're actually able to listen. See, Joseph's thoughts, they were, they were racing. What should I do? And in this state of exhaustion, in this state of worry and anxiety, he heard the voice of God talking to him through an angel that appeared to him in a dream. Joseph's defenses were down, and, and the Lord broke through and spoke to him. See, in the silence of Joseph's sleep, where there were no more racing thoughts, there were no more clever ideas to get out or around this particular situation, he heard God say through that angel, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, don't be afraid. I don't know. Somehow, somehow that's enough for Joseph. An angel's voice in a dream. Imagine that coming out as the story now. Yeah, I heard an angel in a dream. We, we might think that sounds a little bit far-fetched. Okay, Joseph, whatever you say, you had, you had a dream and an angel spoke to you. It was enough for Joseph to hear the voice of God speak to him through an angel in a dream that told him, don't be afraid. And he was able to let go of his own dreams. He was, let, he was able to let go of his own desires and let go of his, his own hopes and, and embrace the grander plan that God had in mind for saving the world. See, everything hinges as much on Joseph's decision as it did on Mary's. Luke tells us that Mary, when approached by the angel and said, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you and you will conceive she said over there in Luke, let it be to me according to your word. She could have said no. 
But it hinges every bit as much on Joseph's response as it did on Mary's. Because if Joseph said, no, that's, that's too far for me to go. I value my own dignity. I value my own honor. I value, I value myself and my reputation more than this. He could have walked away. He could have walked away. Somehow Joseph was able to lay aside the fact that he had nothing to do with any of this mess that he found himself in. He had nothing to do with getting himself into this particular place. Yet he chose to believe that God was right there, present with him in it. He had every reason to walk away and to disown her. He had every right to go seek a better life, a different wife, one who hadn't betrayed him. But he doesn't do that. He steps into the scandal. He takes Mary as his wife. And by doing so, he legitimizes the whole situation. He owns the mess. See, because for him to take Mary as his wife after all of this has happened, their assumption would be that Joseph had been undisciplined and he slept with Mary before they had officially gone through the wedding. He took on shame himself because he was compassionate. Because the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said, don't be afraid. Perhaps you can remember times when circumstances seem to put you in a place like Joseph. You had your, your plans, you had your dreams, your, your own idea of how things would turn out. But then one day, then one day, you found yourself presented with circumstances that, that you really didn't choose living in, in a different life than the one that, that you had in mind, you may ask, how did I get here? You may ask, how do I get out? See, you may want nothing more than to divorce yourself from everything that you see around you. You may want to divorce yourself from whatever life has to offer you right now. But it is at such a time, if you're tired enough, if you're weakened enough, that you're invited to hear the whisper of the angel that says, don't be afraid. God is here. It may not be, it may not be the life that you had planned but God can be born here too if you let him. If you let him. It's a, it's a fragile mystery. It's a fragile mystery that's entrusted to each of us. The mystery that, that God's birth requires human partners. A Mary, a Joseph, a you, a me. People willing to believe the impossible that God can be at work even in the midst of our own shattered dreams. 
See, we're invited to embrace this whole sticky mess and rock it in our arms. I look at Joseph. I look at the character of Joseph. And I wonder if Matthew is trying to give us a picture of what God looks like. See, God had every right to ditch us. He has every right to ditch us, to break off the relationship, to, to divorce us, and to walk away. See, we broke the contract. God doesn't have any obligation to be in relationship to us. None. You can start way back at the beginning with Adam and Eve disobeying God about eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We didn't obey then. We inherited that sin. Then God sought out Abraham. Remember that covenant? I... As many as the stars are in the sky, I will make your descendants. God took on the burden of that contract. Then there were the people that were in Egypt. And God led them out. And in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 19, repeated again in Exodus chapter 24, we read about the covenant that God made with the people. I will be your God, you will be my people. This is what I'm going to do for you, all I require is obedience. The people said, yes, yes, we want to be in on this contract, God. Make the covenant with us. We will obey, we will honor you. You will be our God and we will be your people. Totally 100% submitted to you. What happened? repeatedly, time after time, we broke the contract. We didn't fulfill our end of the bargain. Never once, never once did God go backwards on a covenant. Never once did God let the people down. He was faithful to his end of the bargain. Repeatedly, we, the people, disobeyed. Jeremiah he says that uh, everyone followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. See, this is a picture of humanity. God has every right to move on, to ditch us, to issue that certificate of divorce because we cheated on him. But our God, as righteous as he is, He's compassionate. He's loving. He's merciful. And he had this unconventional plan to send his son Jesus to be our Savior, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God had this unconventional plan to save us. He could have turned us loose, set us aside, moved on to somebody else. But no, no. He said, I love these people. I recognize their stubbornness. 
I know that, I know that deep within them is that desire to, to follow their own evil way and that stubbornness, but, but I can draw them to myself. I can still make them my people. I love them too much. I'm compassionate. I'm merciful. So I'm going to keep coming back. And he pursues us relentlessly. And he had this plan to send Jesus to save us from our sins. Emmanuel. God with us. He travels with us through times of pain and times of suffering. He doesn't remove us from the pain or the suffering always, and he doesn't remove the pain and suffering from us. But he promises his presence. God with us is his name. He is right here with us through thick and thin, through shattered dreams, through broken marriages, through rotten jobs, through cancer, whatever it is, he travels with us. I don't know. It's, that's an unconventional way of going about it, if you ask me. Joseph heard the call of God. He heard the call of God's love. And, and he chose to respond accordingly in his situation. See, when the, when the world was calling for him to sacrifice and take vengeance, Joseph chose to read the Bible through the lens of God's character. He chose to look at the law. He remembered those words of Hosea where, that said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he chose to act out of this love and compassion. And that's Advent. That's Advent. Waiting for the birth of our Savior who will come and save us from our sins. And while we wait, we choose to respond with compassion and love. Joseph is forever going to be remembered for making room in his life for Jesus. God's activity in, in his life was unconventional, and, and it was even inconvenient. But there was Joseph, willing to allow God's plan to unfold in his life. If you, if you think about the figurines in your nativity set, I looked at a lot of pictures this week of nativity sets, and many of them show Joseph like this, bent at one knee at the manger. And it seems fitting to me that Joseph was the first one to bow down and bend the knee to the king of kings, the baby Jesus. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Joseph, seems to me, probably was the first one to bend that knee. And I'm just wondering if you'd do the same. Will you make room in your life this year for God's unconventional advent? Will you?
you stand for prayer? Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe the circumstances of your life are just challenging right now. And you want to give it over to God. Maybe you've never, never bowed your knee to Jesus. Turned your life over to Him. Can't think of a better thing to do this morning, this season, than to make that commitment to Christ. If that's something that you want to do today, I'd love to talk to you about it. You can come and pray. If you make a decision like that, the best thing to do is to talk to somebody else about it. There's an accountability in that. We'd love to pray with you. Seek out a friend or myself or Ken or Trent. But I just invite you to consider that. Will you make room in your heart, in your life? Will you bow your will? Will you bend your knee at the manger? Father, we, we stand in awe of you. We stand amazed at, at the wonder and the mystery of the way that you chose to come and save the world. The way that you chose to come and rescue us from our sins. Father, we acknowledge we are a sinful people and we need your forgiveness. And we bend our knee and we bow down at this manger and we lift you up as our Lord of Lords and our King of Kings and as our Savior. Words can't express our thanks. Father, mold us into your people. May we be a people who respond like Joseph. We can be law-abiding and, and righteous people, but we can read our Bibles through the lens of love and compassion and mercy. So while we wait this year for your advent, for you to be born in our lives anew, May we treat people as you would treat them. May we love them like you love them, with grace and compassion and mercy. For it's in your Son's precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.